Well, I'm Mike. I'm one of the ministers here, and I'm uh, thrilled to welcome you if it's the first time you've been to uh, Grace Church, especially if it's your first week or first Sunday in Manchester. We're delighted to have you with us and hope that we can get to know you better over some lunch. We're starting a new series today in the book of Exodus. Let me start by commenting on this. Um, Were you shocked to hear about the death of Robin Williams by suicide? I certainly was. He was a man who brought joy to a lot of people's lives. He was a performer of rare depth and versatility. He could be a comedian or the tragedian. In the film, The Dead Poets Society, Williams played the part of Mr. Keating, who was a new teacher, the English lit teacher at an elite boarding school. And in a memorable scene, Keating urges the boys to ask the big questions in life. And he quotes from a poem by Walt Whitman. The title of the poem was, Oh Me, Oh Life. Here's how it goes. O me, O life, of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, of myself forever reproaching myself, for who more foolish than I, and who more faithless, of eyes that vainly crave the light, of the objects mean, of the struggle ever renewed, of the poor results of all, of the plodding and sordid crowds I see around me, of the empty and useless years of the rest, with the rest me intertwined. The question, O me, so sad, recurring, what good amid these, O me, O life? Answer, that you are here, that life exists, an identity, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. What good amid these, O me, O life? Answer, that you are here, that life exists, an identity, that the powerful play of the world goes on, and you may contribute a verse. Now, do you ever find yourself asking these questions? Who am I? Where did I come from? Where do I fit in? Why am I here? Two weeks ago, I was standing in a field in a remote corner of South Wales, looking up at the sky, looking at the night stars. Even though it was 11 o'clock at night, I was surrounded by children. All of them were related to me. And we were away on a glamping trip, so-called. Now, the highlight of the trip was really the stars. Have you ever looked at the night sky on a clear day, away from the urban glow? It is breathtaking. It is astonishing when you actually see a real shooting star. I thought they only existed in rom-coms. But I actually saw one. And even just a dim, non-scientist kind of awareness of the vastness of the universe and how far away those stars are and how we can only see a few of them makes you realize how small and minuscule we are and has to make you think and question about life. Now, the same month, we received news while we were on holiday that a friend had died. Not an old man, a man in his 40s. A good man, a loyal friend, a good father, a good husband. Gone before his time, as we might say. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where do I fit in? Do you ever find yourself asking those questions? Surely you do, because there's a universal desire to explain who we are and what we're doing here. Some say we're part of a universal spirit. Some say we're food for earthworms. One of our elders once said to me, In another 20 years, I will probably be fertilizer. 
You can guess who that was if you know the elders of this church. One of the most shocking comments I've ever heard. In another 20 years, I will probably be fertilizer. Now, these are important questions. And according to the Bible, you can't answer those questions without knowing God. You see, without God, we're like rats in a laboratory maze, desperately seeking the exit, but never lifting our eyes beyond the nearest wall. Without God, we're like hamsters, running on an endless wheel, pouring our energies into the immediate, but never actually going anywhere. We can never understand who we are, we can never understand what we're meant to be, we can never understand the reality of our own hearts until we know our maker. Somebody gave me this thing a few years ago. They went on holiday and came back with this. And I said, thank you for that. I have no idea what it is. Pulled it out and I was none the wiser. Have you ever seen one of these? Then I had a bit of text to go on. It comes from the Madonna estate in the Napa Valley in California. Well, I knew that that was a wine region. And it turned out that this is a corkscrew. It's a corkscrew, but I would never have known unless the maker had told me. You see, unless you know the maker, you don't really know your purpose. You don't know who you are. You don't even know what you're for. And here's the thing. We live in a very weird time. Thanks to an amazing technological revolution, which we're still being swept along by, we're able to find the answer to almost everything at the click of a mouse or the swipe of a screen. You can access more information on a smartphone or a laptop in 10 minutes than a medieval person would have had access to in their entire lifetime, right? But has it made us any wiser? You see, we have all of the information and none of the answers because we don't have time to get to the big questions. Maybe we've even cynically given up asking. But yet, there are times when those questions press in again and haunt us. Who am I? How did I get here? Where do I come from? What am I for? A bigger world starts to break into your consciousness, as it did for me looking up at those stars in the night sky. And because we have all the information and none of the answers, our generation is the most stressed and depressed ever. Isn't it? It's time to stop. It's time to understand ourselves and to do that, we need to know the Lord. Because when we know him, we will gain a proper perspective on everything else. And I'm talking here to Christians and non-believers. I'm talking to everybody in the room. Because the biggest problem that most Christians have is we don't really know God. We don't really know him. And so we're cast on the waves like a, a small boat. A hymn written in 1698 contained these words. Fear him, you saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. Make you his service your delight, and he'll make your wants his care. But do we fear him? Because if we don't fear him, we fear everything else. We have to know God. And I'm not talking about just knowing more Bible trivia, as much as I love all the details of the Bible. I'm talking about getting hold of the Bible in such a way that it changes your mind and your thinking and changes the way you look at the world. We need transformation. The great scholar C.S. Lewis once wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And that's why we're starting a new series today at Grace Church in Exodus. And our subtitle is Know the Lord. 
Know the Lord. Because Exodus was written to help people know the Lord. That's why it's in the Bible. It's primarily a book about knowing God through personal experience. Just turn with me, will you, uh, in your Bible to Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. If you've got the church Bible, it's on page 61. Here's the question that the book is answering. Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the Lord? There's the question the book is going to answer. And the Lord answers Pharaoh a couple of pages on in chapter 9, verse 16. Chapter 9, verse 16, page 66. God says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, God is revealing himself to this ancient king in Egypt so that the knowledge of God may be published round the world and accessed by everyone. That's what this book's about. Know the Lord. And those of you here who are Christians and who are uh, members or friends of this church, will you pray for us in the next few months that as we work through this book of Exodus, we will know the Lord in a newer, fresher, deeper way than we've ever seen him before. Because if that happens, anything is possible. Exodus. Now, the root of this word, Exodus, means the road out. And that's what the story's about. Sorry if I've just spoiled it. It's about a road out. It's about a rescue, a deliverance from slavery, and the road out to a promised land of freedom. The first two chapters set the scene, and I want to highlight three points from that section which was just read for us. Unyielding slavery, unchanging sovereign, and unlikely saviour. An unyielding slavery, an unchanging sovereign, and an unlikely saviour. Unyielding slavery. Now, what is the first word? Back to chapter 1, just to keep you awake, keep fanning the pages. Look back to chapter 1. Tell me, what is the first word in Exodus? This is a trick question, by the way. And it's not fair. So what is the first word in Exodus? These. Do you know what? In the original language, the Hebrew language, the first word is and. And. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? If you begin a sentence with and, what are you implying? That it is... Thank you. Connected to something? What was that? There's something before it, yes. It's a continuation. And that's what Exodus is. You turn back to the previous page, you see what's going on. Uh, Genesis 50, verse 22, Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years. And he saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110 and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt, turned the page, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. See, straight on, without, a, without even a blink. Do you remember those TV programs that end on a cliffhanger? And it gets you all excited. And then at the end, it says, to be continued. I used to hate that when I was a kid. They used to do it in things like the A-Team and Six Million Dollar Man. You know, get really excited. I think they were doing it in 24, weren't they? You know, 
Jack Bauer, he's just about to cut someone's finger off. We don't have time for this, he's always saying. And then it's to be continued. Oh, man, please, get us on to the next episode. Now, that's what's going on here. Genesis ends, to be continued. Turn the page. Exodus is resuming a great saga. And now, reading it with your Genesis spectacles on, you're going to see some pretty interesting things here. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 7. Now, bear in mind you've got your Genesis spectacles on, okay? The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Anything coming to mind from Genesis? The creation. What were human beings supposed to do? Fill the world, increase in numbers, be fruitful. I've got five children, I'm obeying God. Move on, move on. So that you fill the earth with the image of God. Now, this is interesting because this is the first time since Genesis 1 that these verbs have occurred together. In other words, these Israelites are doing what God intended. God is blessing them and making them fruitful and they're filling the land. So they're actually doing what they're supposed to do and God is blessing them in it. But something else is going wrong here. Back in Genesis chapter 12, the bit of the Bible that if you had a highlighter, you should highlight and then get a red pen and underline and then get a little purple pen and put stars around it because it's so important. Uh, the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, God says, um, verse 2, I'll make you into a great nation. Good, well, that's happening. And I will bless you and I'll make your name great. Yeah, the name's getting greater and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I'll curse. Well, hang on a minute. They're not being protected by God here in Egypt, are they? You've just seen what happened. Where is God? He said he was going to protect and bless and them and, and curse anyone who cursed them. Now, it does look like they're going without a crash helmet here in chapter 1 and 2, doesn't it? Where is God? What is he doing? He's strangely quiet. And that is all the more perplexing when we see how his people are being treated. Verse 10, a new king comes to power, doesn't know anything about Joseph or chooses to forget about him. And he deals with them shrewdly. He thinks, I don't want them to get too strong, so let's break their spirit. So he sets up slave masters who conscript people into labor gangs to break their spirit, to wear them out, but it doesn't work. So in verse 13, they turn the screw again. They work them ruthlessly. Verse 14, they make their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians work them ruthlessly. They make their lives, do you, do you make your life bitter? Do you know what that tastes like? When life itself becomes bitter? Now it gets worse because they're still not broken. Verse 16, he plans an infanticide to control the population by killing the baby boys through the medical profession, these midwives. And when that doesn't work, in verse 22, he gives a whole people group government permission, state-sponsored permission, to kill the baby boys of another ethnic group. Now, if you know anything about the history of the 20th century, you know what this looks like. That century of great technological advance was also the century of Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Pol Pot, and Idi Amin. It was the century of the Gulag and the concentration camp. It was the century of scorched earth, ethnic cleansing of Rwanda and Bosnian genocides. We know what this looks like. Chapters 1 and 2 are presenting a scene of abject misery. 
And it goes on for a long time, actually. This isn't just a bad couple of weeks. Chapter 2, verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. So this has been going on for years of oppression. And the people groan in their slavery and cry out. And they're really saying, help us, and probably, how long? How long, O Lord? Now, this is starting to confront us with one of the hard questions of the Christian faith. Where is God in all the suffering? Where is he? Is he real? Does he care? And the first thing we learn in Exodus is that sometimes God's people are supposed to suffer. Sometimes suffering is long, painful, and inexplicable. Why? According to the Bible, it's not necessarily as a punishment. Unfortunately, we teach our kids, if you do something wrong, you get punished. And it's all kind of cause and effect. Praise and blame. Do something good, get a reward. Then we carry that mindset into our relationship with God. There's a whole book in the Bible about this called Job. Life goes pear-shaped for Job. And his friends, so-called, come and say, well, Job, you must have done something wrong. You must have sinned. Otherwise, you wouldn't be suffering so much. So what is it? Come on, fess up. And Job, through the whole book, says, hey, honestly, I, I haven't done anything to deserve this. It's not about cause and effect. Sometimes the answer is that God intends suffering. Now, I think the answer of Exodus is, here's why that can happen. So that God will get more glory in the end. So that God will get more glory in the end. Now, that is starting to reorient our lives, isn't it? What this is telling us is that my life is not all about me. It's all about the glory of God. And if we can grasp this, it will change. It will start to change things about us. It will start to change everything about us. It will start to give us more steel in our spine. And it will start to change the way we suffer. Many of you have heard the story of a young woman, as she was, called Joni Erickson. Now, Joni Erickson Tada, who was an athletic fit, healthy young woman in her teens. She, she was keen on swimming. She dived <clears throat> off the edge of, uh, of the side and, and, and broke her neck on a rock under the water and was crippled instantly, was rescued from the water, and for the rest of her days was unable to move anything below her neck. And she wrote a very moving bio autobiography about her experiences, her experiences of uh, being in hospital, in traction, in with bed sores and uh, humiliation and absolute frustration and crying out to God, please heal me, and people coming and praying that she'd be healed. And she was never healed. But what changed was her mentality and her mindset. And she started to rebuild her life and her, her attitude to everything changed. And she, she realized God must have a purpose for this, and I don't know what it is. She became a speaker. She spoke to millions of people around the world. People's lives have been transformed through her. She actually became an artist. She could paint with a paintbrush held in her lips. She redeemed her circumstances because she grasped something deep in her heart that we need to grasp too, that God is an unchanging sovereign. He's an unchanging sovereign. Now, how do you tend to think about God? What's your mental picture? Some people think of him as a distant, remote force. Some people think of him as a kind of benign Father Christmas you know, a bit unpredictable, but if I'm good, he might just help me out. Others project the image of their own father. A friend of mine once said, I tend to think of God as a short, angry Scotsman with ginger hair. Now, the Bible's primary image for God is that of a great king, a king. But I'm going to use the word sovereign. 
for three reasons. Firstly, the word king may conjure up sort of localized examples that are a bit silly, like Henry VIII, if you're British. Secondly, sovereign captures the, the majesty of supreme power. And thirdly, I needed a word that began with S. Just to show you that, I've got slavery, sovereign, and savior. So I needed one. King just wasn't going to do it. Okay, God is sovereign, and that means that he reigns. Well, what kind of ruler is he? Genesis shows him creating the world with wonderful beauty and creativity. We sang about it, didn't we? You know, the storehouses, heavenly storehouses full of snow and imagining the stars and the, where everything should go. That's the, the God that the Bible portrays, one who makes everything without any help and then rests to enjoy his finished work. Shows him providing for humankind, creating wonderful opportunities for them, giving them purpose. Shows him as a being who loves passionately, as well as a being of ultimate power. Shows him as a being who is supremely holy and supremely happy. The Bible shows us a God who actively sustains the world. He's not a, a distant watchmaker who set it going and left it alone. He's governing it all the time, but he doesn't micromanage. It gives humanity enormous freedom to go our own way. He's patient, kind, faithful. Even when people rebel against him, he's holy and gracious. While he must punish wrong, he also promises a deliverer. The Bible shows a God who relates to people as a king does in the ancient world. That is through covenants. Now, a covenant is a, is a formal agreement that formalizes a relationship. The closest thing we have to it is the covenant of marriage. And in a covenant, both sides make promises and commitments. And there are blessings and there are penalties if you break the covenant. And God binds himself to his people throughout the Bible in a remarkable way through covenants. He's going to do it at Mount Sinai later in the book. But here's the incredible thing about God and the way he work, makes covenants. He makes promises that even if the people ultimately fail, he will take the punishment so that the covenant will re remain eternal. Now, are you starting to glimpse a vision of the kind of God, the kind of sovereign we're talking about? He's faithful to his promises, unchanging in his character, but he is far, far above us. The Bible even uses this sort of language of God in the heavens above, you know, looking down. It's... it's it's not literal, but it's, it's to give us the impression of his greatness and distance and majesty. Oh, how unsearchable are his judgments. His ways are past finding out. So, suffering may not have a quick fix, but it does have an overarching purpose that we may not see now. And this unyielding suffering of these Israelites was not a surprise. It was actually foretold centuries before in Genesis 15. God told Abraham that his descendants would be slaves in the land, not their own, for 400 years. So we read, in back to Exodus 2, that he heard his people's prayer. Let's look at it. Turn with me to Exodus 2, 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now, the idea that God remembered his covenant is not the same thing as you saying, I've remembered where I put the car keys. I just forgot for a few hundred years. It's more like saying God called it to mind and decided to act on it. 
This remembering is a way of focusing your attention on something very sharply so that you're going to do something. He's pressing play on the covenant button. So let me ask you, have you ever cried out to God for help? Have you ever cried out to God for help? If you're suffering, who are you talking to? I know some of you here know a lot more about suffering than I do. Last year, a young woman at Salford University cried out to God for help in the middle of the night. She was not from a Christian family, but she'd met Christians at the university. She'd gone to the CU out of curiosity at first, and she went week by week and learned more and more about God. And these are her words. I was having a really bad day to the point where I just broke down and couldn't cope anymore. It was after midnight when this happened, and so my housemates were asleep, and I had no one to talk to. In simple desperation, I asked God for help, and in that one moment, I understood that God was there, and of course he'd help me. He'll always help me. It was a strange thing, going from being extremely unhappy to filled with joy in a second, but it was the best moment. Her name is Jenny. She's being baptized later today. I hope you can come along. Now notice, the outcome of her suffering, her desperation of the dark night, was crying out to God and finding him. And this is how God keeps his promises to Israel. The third thing, third point that we notice in this passage, is that there is an unlikely savior. Quietly, in the midst of all the misery, God is preparing a rescuer. But he's Kind of unusual, isn't he? His name is Moses. And notice what it says about Moses. Look with me, chapter 2, verse 2. Again, put your Genesis spectacles back on for a moment here. I'm going to change one of these words to reflect what's underneath. Uh, She became pregnant and gave birth to a son when she saw that he was a good child. She hid him for three months. She saw that he was good. Where else did we read that God sees things are good? Creation. It's the only time these words are cropping up again since the creation. So there's a hint here that this is a new creation going to happen. With Moses, God is going to start a new world, a new people, a whole new way of life. Another hint here, I'm going to change another word here. It's in our footnote, verse 3. But when she could hide the baby no longer, she got a papyrus ark for him and coated it with tar and pitch. See, there it is in your footnote. The only other time this word for basket appears is when it's talking about Noah's ark, when God saved humanity from the flood and brought them safe to another place, and a new creation was started with the family of Noah. So here we have again a second, third Adam who's going to start the new creation. God is going to create a new people here, but it starts in a pretty sort of weak-looking inauspicious type of way. Moses has a passion for justice, but he ends up on the run. Alienated, even from the Hebrews. They're like, whoa, what are you doing? You're a bit crazy. And the Egyptians are out for his head. He has a passion for justice, but he's estranged from everyone. In order to lead his people, he has to lose his influence and his throne. He's a prince. He has to lose his influence, become a nobody. Become a nobody out in the desert before he can lead the people out of slavery. And that's what he does under God. He will lead them out of slavery in the most remarkable manner. And that's how Exodus begins. But I know now that some of you are thinking, so what? 
So what? What does this have to do with me on Monday morning? Well, let me ask you one question. Are you a slave? Are you a slave? And you're thinking, "Mm, no, (laughs) I don't get paid well, but I'm not a slave. Hold on a minute. Just think about the conditions of slavery that this chapter described. Working, they were worked ruthlessly by the slave masters who made their lives bitter. And they groaned and cried for help. I want to propose to you that a lot more people are slaves than they realize. And what are the slave masters? Anything that makes you, your life bitter and works you ruthlessly and leaves you groaning. If you ever self-harm or you're tempted to self-harm, you are a slave to something. If you have an eating disorder or you hate looking at yourself in the mirror, you are a slave to something. If you have panic attacks that you get utterly overwhelmed and can't face life, you are a slave to something. If you ever fail, and the feeling of failure is so crushing that you hate yourself and you hate your life, you are a slave. If you're addicted to something that you can't shake, drink, porn, fantasy world, you are a slave. If you always work much, much harder than you need to, if you always need to be top of the class, if you dread being average or second rate, you are a slave. If you're driven by fear of being single or driven by fear of being poor and you make bad choices as a result, you are a slave. If you're obsessed with the quest to be beautiful and it takes away your joy, you are a slave. If your children dominate your life and their happiness or their success rules you, you are a slave to your children. If you're obsessively self-protective and you can't let people in, you are a slave. Friends, we're enslaved by a lot more things than we realize. Anything that works you ruthlessly and makes your life bitter is a form of slavery. We just don't realize it. A lot more people are enslaved than they think because most slavery is in the mind. Most slavery is the slavery of the spirit. We're slaves to our significance. We want to be someone. We're slaves to our security. We want to be safe. Now, why are we like this? Because we're wired to serve. Human beings are built to serve somebody. Nobody's truly free in the sense of being completely detached. Everybody serves something. The question is, is what I serve giving me life or taking my life away. And the story of Exodus is a story of a change in masters, a story of a change in lords. The people going from being slaves of Pharaoh to servants of the Lord. They are set free, not in the sense of being free to do anything they want, but in free in being given a new master, a new lord. That's what we need. And by the way, I'm talking today mostly to Christians Because a lot of Christians are still living as slaves. Yes, you follow Jesus. Yes, you prayed a prayer, you trust him. Yes, you're in church, but in some parts of your life, you've went back to Egypt. This man, uh, his name was George Eldon Ladd. He was a professor of New Testament. In some surveys of Christian leaders, Ladd's book on the New Testament is the second, they say it's the second most influential book that Christian leaders have read after Calvin's Institutes. Let me tell you, Calvin's Institutes is a pretty big book. 
Ladd was huge in his generation. He published books that, that won the respect of many, many people. He was an expert in the Bible. You know, he probably forgot more about the Bible than I will ever know. He devoted his life to his studies and his publications. And he worked on this book called Jesus and the Kingdom. It was going to be his life's work. And then the book was published. And somebody wrote a review, a damaging, devastating review. And when he saw the review and read it, it ruined him. That one single review. He spiraled from that point on into alcoholism and eventually was a public drunk wandering around the streets, a disgrace to his family. His kids disowned him. This man who knew so much about Jesus. Here's, what, here's the description of what happened when he saw the review from an eyewitness. The impact of the first reading was evident immediately. Lad was stricken right down to the core and the, on the edge of being manic and out of control. He had a strange look in his eyes, as though he'd been mortally wounded, and he paced the room with his guests still there, no longer aware of their presence. He said he was an academic failure and a scholarly wipeout. His friends tried to console him by encouraging him to wait for some other reviews, but his words had absolutely no effect on him. When his friend left, he remembers thinking that he looked destroyed. He was destroyed by a single review. Now, obviously, it wasn't just that review. It was everything else that had built up to it because his whole life had been trying to prove himself. He'd had a strict disciplinarian father. He, Lad was very tall and gangly and totally rubbish at sport. At school, he was called a freak. And his father backed that up, thought he was good for nothing. He had to prove himself. He had to prove himself. And he was very bright and academic, so he went into studying the Bible. He published his book on Jesus and the kingdom, and it destroyed him. You see where this is going? You may be a slave to voices that said you were fat, voices that said you were thick, voices that said you were a freak, an outsider, nobody. You see the problem here. You can learn more about the Bible than any of us will ever know and forget about Jesus because he is the unlikely savior. He's the one who had a passion for justice but ended up estranged from everyone. He's the one who, in order to lead his people, gave up his influence and his throne and his power. He's the one who became a nobody, out on the cross. Cried out, so rejected that even his father had turned his face away and it was his will to crush him, so that Jesus could lead his people out of slavery, out of those things that we've lived our lives for, which are so meaningless. Lead us into a whole new creation, brought about by Jesus in his death and resurrection. That's where Exodus ultimately is going to take us. So, Will you pray that we will get to know God better in this series and that through knowing him, we'll change and who knows what will happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look into your word uh, as in a mirror sometimes and we don't like what we see. We detect, perhaps we've been hiding it from ourselves, we detect our own self-centeredness, our pride and the foolish fears with which we live. We realize that we live for the wrong things when all the time you're right in front of us. You've given us the greatest treasure, Jesus Christ, your son, our savior, and yet we've got him there on the back burner and we're pursuing something else. Have mercy on us again. Renew us again. Send your Holy Spirit to us so that we will live for you wholeheartedly, that we will know you whom to know is life eternal. We pray it for Jesus' glory and fame. 
and in his great name. Amen.